0: This is from page 282 of your wonderful book, Scale. (laughs) Thank you. And um, this is not a contiguous excerpt. I read part of a paragraph, then another part of a paragraph. Okay, sure. So you wrote, quote, With the development of language, human beings acquired the capability of exchanging and communicating new kinds of information on a scale and at a rate that was unprecedented in the entire history of life. A major outcome of this revolution was the discovery of the fruits of economies of scale. By working together, we could build and accomplish more with the same amount of individual effort, or equivalently, we could complete specific tasks faster using less energy per person. We developed, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, we developed imagination and brought to consciousness the concept of the future and therefore, the remarkable ability to plan, to think ahead, and construct possible scenarios in anticipation of future challenges and events. So, I just I guess my question here—it's almost like language, I guess itself, which is probably the most primary technology we use—really um, contributed to this discovery i guess if it's a discovery of the future right so we have this we started looking further forward in time through the invention of language and then this cre- this started that bootstrapping process that we've described earlier where you're just we're, we're using language to communicate be more energy efficient and then we figure out other modes or technologies or energy sources in the world that propel that virtuous cycle Forward even faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I have a great question about this, but I'd like to maybe just hear your commentary on it.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, that was good. Actually, I like that. I <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember that. No, I remember the uh, you know thinking about that, but I don't remember those words. Uh, um, yeah, no, it, it struck me, and I'm sure I'm not um, you know unique in this, not original in this, um, that once you had two things about language, I mean, among many, um, one was the first part of what you quoted, uh, that by communicating, um, we could um, uh, start to um, organize ourselves in order to address tasks together. So it's cemented the collective uh, behavior. You know, I mean, there's no, I think um, uh, Ed Wilson, um, you know, the the biologist who just died recently, the ecologist Mm. um, uh, remarked something to the, the effect there's no such thing as a single ant, can't be. And I would say that you could say that about human beings, there's no such thing. I mean, I know there's the image that you can go be a hermit and live on top of the mountain and so on. But that's no longer the essence of a human being, if it ever was, Uh human being is essentially social. Uh And, And and before we discovered language, we were already social in terms of hunter gatherer communities and so forth. Um, But they really became effective once we could communicate and develop uh, ideas. Uh, And uh, this discovery then of what I call their economies of scale, that is you and I working together um, can accomplish a task uh, faster than each of us individually working Uh. separately. um, You know, the image of... uh, all of us working together to build a house, for example, and, so, uh-huh. and that's what it is. That's what, of course, um, you know, the, so, so the, the social fabric is all about, and you know, with explicit manifestations in terms of companies and um, and other kinds of organizations. Um, so there's that, but also the other thing about us, uh, two other things about us communicating by language. Is that we can develop ideas, and right. we do. Um, you know, again, it's that that feedback mechanism. Create ideas together and figure out how to solve problems, to innovate, and so on. It's the right. beginnings of innovation and invention, and uh, so that's fundamental. And the last thing, which is sort of more philosophical but also crucial, is uh, and you, you had a very nice phrase. Invent the future Uh, because, uh, um, you know, I I think it's probably true that no other part of nature, first of all, has the same kind of consciousness that we do. And it has, it doesn't, it is not explicitly conscious of the future. uh, We can fantasize about the future, you know, by inventing it, so to speak, as you said. You know, we fantasize about various scenarios that could be that we want desires and so on. And perhaps, in a certain way, philosophically, the most profound is that we are possibly the only creature that knows it's going to die. Uh, you know, and that's that's the most profound thing at an individual level. Each of us knows that we're going to die, and we don't know when. Um, we mostly try to put it off as long as possible. But, uh, you know, we are conscious of our own mortality. And no other part of nature is like that. Um, so, uh, and that has profound consequences, uh, I think, for the way we form societies, the way we've developed um, cults and religions, and the way we've uh, even invented culture. that has a profound so so language was sort of this as you say perhaps our first real technology (laughs) that led us on this extraordinary path uh, that we find that that has ended up being the kind of uh, existence we have today um, that
0: has separated us from the rest of the biosphere
1: Hmm.
0: yeah it's fascinating it almost I'm led to believe that perhaps it is the human imagination that is our most powerful tool, right? That yeah. To even imagine, I don't know how exactly language emerged, so forgive me, but no. to be able to create this technology that then lets us handle, you know, um, coming out of the perceptual world and into the conceptual world, yes. that we can now handle ideas and, you know, run simulations and, and just... Yeah. Think right. I mean, that's yeah. that's um, so. It's almost like the human imagination uh, is just that—that that theater, I guess—that we have that other animals don't. So we can just consider more of reality and basically outcompete every other animal.
1: Yeah, and I think once it began, you know, once once this process began of language, as you say, imagination, fantasy. Um, you know, thinking about the future, being an integrated experience from the past into Uh the present and therefore into the future, Uh uh, and so on, and conceive of things, having concepts. Once it began, and it began by communicating with each other, I think like many of these other things, it had positive feedback in it, Uh and it exponentiated, Uh and, uh, you know, and it took us from being just a little bit different from animals, Mm -hmm. uh, which was sort of pre the invention of community of of sedentary communities and cities, you know, we were still really part of the, if you like the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. Um, Once we became sedentary, discovered agriculture, in order to allow us to be sedentary. um, And uh, we took off from there. Then it becomes exponential.
0: Yes. Um, Yeah. And I'm, um, you know, so we we are the animal that plays imaginary, I guess. I have a a young daughter, (laughs) so I'm very familiar with this. Like, she plays imaginary all the time. But when we grow up, you know, we're still sort of playing imaginary, right? We've created these, you know, Yuval Harari wrote about these in his book, Sapiens, these imagined orders, as he calls them. Sure. But we have, you know, nation states, civil liberties, money, human rights, yep. and it's almost like we've created another strata of Darwinian competition because now these imagined orders are competing with one another. Right? We're trying to figure out which model works best, yep. and even it's still, clearly it's ongoing. But it's fairly recent, you know, as we've said the past what two hundred and fifty to three hundred years that we figured out capitalism was a good imagined order you know it, it actually has very practical effects in the real world um so this thing is it, it's very interesting we constantly we typically think of innovation in the physical space physical tools but more importantly is this these imagined orders that we mm-hmm. that we innovate so yeah so it's interesting I mean it, it's fascinating to think that you know
1: through through all of uh, the earth's history, Timescales have been, you know, for things to change and for things to happen are you know very large compared to the ones we're familiar with. Mm. You know, lifetimes don't matter. Mm. You know, individual lifetimes did not matter Mm. in in sort of prehistory. And it's only recently that lifetime, you know, I mean, up in fact, right up to maybe, you know, my own generation, so to speak. Uh, major innovations, you know, took place um, longer than a human lifetime, you know, up to now, up to maybe certainly the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but sort of beginning through the 20th century, big innovations were taking place in timescales less than a lifetime. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing, which is uh, which means you have to adapt. Um, within a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something quite new, and is possibly part of the kind of angst, <laughs> <laughs> part of society, you know, that we are, you know, we have to be on our toes all the time kind of feeling, yeah. Um, yeah. one way or another. And that's, you know, that all stemmed from this discovery of language, and so on. And and so you know, as you you know, the time scale over which that's happened is maybe ten thousand years, from sort of the, the discovery of primitive language, and the development of the of innovation, and and futuristic thinking, uh, and uh, the other great marker is indeed the uh, industrial revolution mm-hmm. uh, that we've talked about uh, quite a bit in this, yeah. and uh, that's only been um, you know. 200, 250 years uh-huh. and uh, so one of the questions one might have is you know these are so small these time scales on typical time scales which are often hundreds of thousands if not millions of years uh-huh. is this just some little blip that has <laughs> happened that it's going to an interesting fascinating exciting experiments that you know we happen to be involved in which is fantastic but it ain't gonna last uh-huh. you know it's just, you know that's the big question yeah. An interesting experiment of natural selection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's up to us, right? It's up to us to figure yeah. out. No, we are,
1: have. And yeah. that's the other thing. I was so much more, you know, to, to some degree, and we don't know how much, we're in the driver's seat. Uh-huh. You know, we'd like to think we're really in the driver's seat, but obviously there are all these forces, uh-huh. natural forces at work, and uh, we have to understand those. And, uh, uh, but we are more than any other organism uh, in the driver's seat. I mean, we we can think it through, and we can, you know, this new phenomenon of being able to think uh-huh. in those terms of conceptualize and plan, uh-huh. and actually plan. I mean, my gosh, animals don't plan, trees right. don't plan. Yeah. Uh, we plan and think about it and recognize some of these issues and some of the forces that are at work. We and so it's important to understand those because then we we should be able to work with those forces rather than against them.
0: Right. Yeah. I think
1: that's sort of the trick in if you like, yes. that we have to come to terms with, work with the forces right. that the
0: the natural forces rather than against them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's what immediately sprang to mind there was uh flight, you know, the, the concept of lift. That we, yeah. we tried to fly for a long time, but we really just had to work with nature we had to figure out how to, you know, yes. you had to move the air under the wing faster than the air on top of the wing. <laughs> yes. That's what creates lift. So. Yeah. so, yeah, but that was great because we had to know something called Benui's principle.
1: Which was that <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, but, you know, it was discovered uh, by Bernoulli And then people realized that that meant that, uh, in, you know, maybe by developing fixed wings, you could actually fly rather than trying to imitate birds. Because oh, right. we don't have the musculature to do that. There's no yeah. way a human being can fly like a bird. right? Unless you make a machine
0: that's got... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> sort of a-
0: so I'll read another excerpt here. This one is quite mind-blowing. Um, I think you'll see what I mean. So you write, because the geometry of white and gray matter in our brains which forms the neural circuitry responsible for all of our cognitive functions, is itself a fractal-like hierarchical network. This suggests that the hidden fractal nature of social networks is actually a representation of the physical structure of our brains. This speculation can be taken one step further by invoking the idea that the structure and organization of cities are determined by the structure and dynamics of social networks in which case the universal fractality of cities can be viewed as a projection of the universal fractality of social networks. Putting all this together, we are led to the outrageous speculation that cities are effectively a scaled representation of the structure of the human brain. And then you go on to say, this is perhaps more than just metaphor and would mean that a map of a city representing its physical and socioeconomic flows is a nonlinear representation of the geometry and flows in the neural network of our brains. That's incredible. Um, I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by this idea of, I mean, it's just really the idea of fractals, I guess, that you know, nature manifests itself in these self-similar but non-identical layers. Um and I wonder just how many dimensions of reality is that manifest within? Um, and it seems like this might be the through line, right? There might be a physical connection here somehow between the structure of, say, the brain and the structure of cities, for instance.
1: So interesting that you uh, quoted that back to me because, uh, and I'm glad you did yeah. because it was, it is perhaps the most really truly speculative part of the book, just that one paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, like you, I, I I became very fascinated with fractals, both in terms of, you know, just the fact that they're all around us mm-hmm. and with the mathematics of them and trying to understand why is it that these fractal structures emerge? And we talked a little bit about that earlier. And uh, It is related, I believe, to um, um, this idea of optimization, that these Mm -hmm. systems, these highly complex systems um, uh, with with many components or many actors, if you like, uh, many constituents, um, um, in in order to carry out their functionalities and in order to uh, optimize them, especially optimized, in many cases, uh because of some analog to natural selection that is the survival of the fittest there's some evolutionary pressure in other cases optimized like in a river but um in a physical system that uh, the most efficient way of getting water off the mountains down to the sea um you know is is a fractal-like network mm-hmm. but, uh, so it was it was to do with optimization in general um uh, but uh, this paragraph, was the recognition of something that had come out of the work that uh, we did on cities. And that was that, uh, uh, which we had discussed earlier. And that is that um, the, um, the 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 socioeconomic quantities, in particular, um, uh, which are which are, are, are rooted in the structure and dynamics of social networks, because mm-hmm. That's where, you know, in terms of this, this um, positive feedback that occurs, mm-hmm. giving rise to these superlinear behaviors. And the fact that all socioeconomic quantities, whether good, bad, or ugly, so whether it's GDP, a number of patents, or the number of um, the amount of crime or AIDS cases, um, all scale in a similar way. Um, is because they're all rooted in social networks. Mm -hmm. So, um, but even the physicality of a city, namely the the fractal network of roads um, is connected to social networks because those social networks have to take place and are facilitated by the physicality of the city. You have to be someplace, you have Mm -hmm. to travel between places. So these two networks have to be tied. So, in other words, the um, the, social inter- the social, the social, the the physical networks and the fractality of them is has to be related and is related. If you look at the data, mm-hmm. to social mm-hmm. networks. So that was that was part of sort of the work that we did on cities. But then, at a deeper level. There was the question, but where does the structure of the social networks themselves come from? Mm -hmm. Well, um, that comes from uh, the way we interact. But the way we interact is determined sort of by our brains. This was the idea, you know, that we, um, our thought processes and so on. And um, the, uh, uh, and so uh, maybe. It is that that fractal network that exists in our brains, in our neural networks, um, is somehow rep- manifesting itself in the way we form our social networks. This is not an original idea by me. It's uh, an idea that uh, exists in social, uh, social science, in psychology. Um, and psychology. Um, and... Uh, it was. Uh, I was trying to remember the name of the person. I got it, uh, and I talk about it in the book. It's it's an idea that was developed by a man named Robin Dunbar, who's a, a professor yeah. at Oxford. Dunbar's and number, right? Dunbar's number has become sort of in the business community, um, some of the uh, you know something that people bandy around. Uh, but uh, what what Dunbar um, suggested was that the, the structure, one of the structures of the social network in terms of its fractal nature is that, and I think we did talk about this earlier again, that you know, if you ask uh, how many people are you closely connected to, well, that number turns out to be roughly between four and six, say it's about, roughly about five. Those are people that you're really deeply connected to you, you know, you love, uh-huh. you, you know, express your deepest thoughts, if need be to them, and you feel comfortable with that. And that's typically sort of close family members, or, or one or two close friends, uh-huh. and so on. Um, and then you ask, you know, what what about the next level, people that you are really, you know, you're very good friends with, that you spend time with, uh-huh. maybe colleagues at work, you go out to dinner together, have parties together, that number is about 15. Uh-huh. And then you have another layer, which is those that yes, they're friends, they're colleagues, um, acquaintances, you've seen them maybe see them at work every day, but you know, you don't, you only see them at the Christmas party or whatever, uh-huh. you know, number numbers about 5045 to 50. Uh-huh. And then there's a number of people that, you know, you know, you don't know, well, but you recognize them and so on. And you but you maybe they're again, colleagues at work or uh, your cousins or distant relatives, you don't see occasionally. their numbers about 150. And mm-hmm. what you recognize about these numbers, is they increase by a factor of three, you go mm-hmm. five, 15, 45, roughly 150. Mm-hmm. And then there's number around 500 and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
1: tried to codify this. And he tried also to present data pretty flimsy, may I say, Mm. To support it, and it was—it's been—it was controversial, and it is controversial. Uh, some people accept it, some not. I accept. I like it because it mm. fits extremely well <laughs> into uh, the, this work we were doing on social networks in cities. Mm. And Dunbar speculated that, um, and, and I also ascribe to this, that those numbers evolved from our hunter-gatherer days, in terms of um, the the way in which we attacked problems. Again, you had the the hunter-gatherer group was about 150 to 200, Uh typically. It varies, of course. Uh Um, But, you know, it broke down into some some close family pieces Uh and then pieces that were bigger and so So you had this kind of hierarchy um, and, he thought that that was sort of uh, uh, since you know we were hunter gatherers for such a long time, that was now encoded in our DNA, uh. and is encoded in the way our brains, our neurons, have now organised themselves in order to deal with social phenomena. Huh. So it's a bit of a stretch. I uh. must admit. I mean, I don't not my work, but <laughs> I I like the idea. And I tried to pick up on it in writing this paragraph, that yes, let's take that seriously. That these dumb, first of all, that these num- dumb numbers are for real. Mm-hmm. That's the way social structures are organized, um, loosely speaking. And that they are encoded in our DNA and therefore encoded in the structure of our brain. Therefore, if we take that seriously, we can go backwards. Mm-hmm. The brain, the structure of the brain has given rise to the structure of the social networks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Social networks, as I've said, give rise to the structure of a city
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in terms of its social interactions. But the social interactions determine the physical structure of our city. Therefore, that physical structure that you see around you, mm-hmm. that has these fractal properties, are actually a bizarre representation. Of the structure of our brains. Wow. So that was of the, yeah. <laughs> of what I called outrageous speculation. <laughs> and it is outrageous speculation. And um one of the things that I haven't done is to try to take this a little bit further and think about it more seriously, actually, and to actually construct a theoretical framework, mathematical framework to put that into practice. But it's been on the back burner for me. But I wrote that, it was one of the one of the times in the book that I sort of let my hair down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Speculative. But it's well, an interesting idea, an intriguing idea. And I have to say, I have to admit, um, uh, I like it very much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I'm glad you did it because yeah, it's it's almost one of those like dim apprehensions or intuitions I've had about complex systems previously, but um there's just a little more meat on the bones, I guess you might say, you know, so it's, I'm, I'm glad you did that. And I, let me think here. So there's a couple of things because then, there, then that would also imply that it becomes this reflection, like between creator and created, right. That, that, that the human brain sort of adapts to its environment, but the environment also Absolutely. adapts to the human mind. So there's this conformity, this yep. dance always taking place, which is really interesting. Um, and I talked to John Verveke about this to some extent, and he recommended two, I don't know if you've heard of either of these areas. One is uh, niche construction. Oh, yeah, sure. And then the other one was material engagement theory. Um, And I can't speak super deep to either one of them, but they, they sort of g- go to this point as well, that there's some particularly with material engagement theory, it's, it's like, it, I guess it's positing is like, where do you draw the line of the human mind? It gives the example of the blind man's stick, you know, like the blind man is extending his perception into the stick as it touches sure. external reality. It becomes part of his extended phenotype or something like that. Sure. Sure. Um, so it's really interesting. It's like, where do you draw the line? We always say that the mind is like a, you know, a, a head bound phenomenon, but, not really. If you're the blind guy, your mind is also in the stick. Absolutely. And there's other, you know, many other examples. So it's just something I'm really fascinated by because I'm selfishly trying to tie this back to, again, the corruption of money. I, like, I think money is a perceptual tool. So if we yeah. if we fiddle around with it too much, we can have, you know, there's psychological consequences, Absolutely. Um, which could also be socioeconomic or city, you know, all the, all the different layers of the fractal. Um. Yeah. So that's interesting. So to... yeah,
1: so it's interesting. I, I um no. Um, the idea of niche construction, which is now you know a, a serious aspect of uh, evolutionary theory and uh, and uh, ecology, um, is is loosely related to my speculation. I mean, niche construction is that you know um, a- animals or organisms. Um, um, of course, have evolved in a niche, but that niche is not a some fixed entity, uh, because as they evolve, they affect the, whatever the niche is. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, they interact with it. They they get food from it. They um, you know uh, uh, they change it in various ways uh, by moving the earth or whatever, eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, other other organisms that live in it. So they are, you know, that's continually changing. But of course, that niche is also determining their behavior. Yes, And so it's this, uh, this, as you say, it's a dance between them, it's a continuous feedback mechanism between Uh the two. And, um, uh, you know, so you could think of the city in, the, in that, that sort of image that I gave the city uh-huh. of representation of our brains, uh, some, you know, uh, grandiose way of thinking about that, mm-hmm. that um, we, in our own way, have um, uh, created this niche, which we call the city. We, uh-huh. you know, we, we once just wandered around in the natural environment uh-huh. and we gradually changed that environment. That was the niche we evolved in. Uh, at a certain period over a certain period, and now we've changed that niche in a dramatic way, and that's mm-hmm. the city, and so on. Um, but that city uh, at the same time that has, uh, of course, um, during the evolutionary period changed our, our brains the way in which right. our brains have worked in order mm-hmm. to ha- deal with that, and so on. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not, it's it, there's no chicken and egg here, They yeah. they're together. It's uh, they've they evolved together. And I think that's uh, so, uh, as I say, niche construction is a, you know, is an integral part now of uh, biological thinking about evolutionary processes.
0: Yeah, the, I'll leave you, not leave you, but I'll give you one other deeper point that he gave me on this topic. I like that we're calling it a dance, actually, uh, because he described it as like, OK, you can't really be a dancer until you're dancing. And at the same time, a, a, an area is not a dance floor until it's being danced upon. Yeah. So, th- so his deeper philosophical point was that identity itself is co-determining yes. like, like the yeah. dancer makes the niche, the dance floor by dancing on it and makes themselves a dancer. Yeah. Um, and it, and that gets back to that kind of imaginary realm we're dealing with as humans, right? We're, we're thinking like, what is this individual's role in the, the imagined hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's imagined, but it's also kind of real at the same time. <laughs> so um, let me ask you this then. Okay. So the social networks are hierarchical. They have to be, right? Typically, mm-hmm. uh, I guess there's ways to do it. non. They're more or less hierarchical, I guess we could say. So is the geometry of a social network then it's optimizing for something, I, I think it might be like between adapting to novelty versus maintaining some uh, rigidity, right? Or there's or, or some there's some fixed structure, but it also needs to be able to respond to or adapt to novelty itself. Uh, and it, I'm thinking here, is this similar to like, is there a physics to that? You know, I, I guess because you you described Dunbar like he's saying that oh this just emerged from our hunter gatherer past i'm wondering if there's a deeper physical and i know we're just speculating here but could there be a deeper physics principle behind this where i'm thinking like something like the geometry of a social network or a, or a human hierarchy could also share some physical principles with like the river basin right that It's kind of optimizing for flow, but it also needs to have branches to distribute some of that flow from the main channel, etc. Not a fully formed question there, but I'd love to. It's a speculation, I guess, on how much physics is involved in uh, the structuring of social networks. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, when I remarked earlier that uh, you know something went on the back burner uh, to think about this sort of outrageous speculation, as I called it, um, was in fact, to to try to formalize uh, and understand the origin of uh, things like the Dunbar numbers, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not just arbitrary. In other words, I take a physicist's view, none of these numbers, none of these things are arbitrary, Mm -hmm. there has to be some principle, or some dynamic uh, that leads to it. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, and, and I think typically it would be a physicist perspective. Something is being optimized here, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. I mean, in this multidimensional space in which these systems live. Um, so you know, going back to something of first, uh, first a little more mundane, um, in terms of uh, cities, for example, if you ask about just the um, physical networks, the roads and so on. Now, presumably, one of the things that evolved, you know, that that was crucial in the evolution of those structures was the uh, idea that everybody, anybody moving from A to B, wants to do it in as, you know, shorter distance or shorter time as possible. Uh So, So, you know, you can imagine that that system evolved by optimizing Um, over the entire system, Uh you know, the the entire community, can you optimize in such a way that, uh, you know, any two people um, any, any person is trying to get between any two places as Uh quickly as possible. And, um, you know, we've made some progress on that. And I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's very likely that that is the case in terms of, you know, the kinds of transport networks. Uh Now, of course, Realize again. I have to put a big caveat in this that I've, I've said earlier. This is very coarse grained. I mean, it's very low resolution mm-hmm. because uh, you know uh, <laughs> you have geography. You know, you have to go around things, right, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But roughly speaking, and in fact, work that we did uh, a couple of years ago uh, showed that um, the um, within cities. Uh, the the, the pattern in which uh, the flux of people moves on the average in terms of how far they have to go and and how frequently they visit places is actually determined in this way by some kind of optimization that's going on. Hmm. Um, So that's kind of a physical aspect to it. But then you can ask, you know, what about in terms of the social network in terms of the interactive social network between people? What if anything is being optimized in that? And, um, you know, the speculation there is that what is being optimized, is possibly that the, the network is such, in order to facilitate a maximum social interaction, hmm. you, know, you want to maximize the way in which people can interact with each other. And at the same time, and, and this is really sticking one's neck, neck out, that in terms of some some social good or some even material good, people want more. Each person wants to get as much as possible. Sort mm. of a, you know, for, for want of a better phrase, a kind of greed hypothesis. And then mm. without, I use the word greed, which of course has a kind of pejorative implication, mm-hmm. but it, it, just that you want more. And, self-interest, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're out of self-interest. And, yeah. and so the system adjusts itself so that uh, on the average, each person is getting, you know, as much as they possibly could, so to speak. Now, mm-hmm. there's a huge variation in that, otherwise you wouldn't have the extraordinary hierarchy of, you know, there's obviously extremely rich people and there's very mm-hmm. poor people um, mm-hmm. and so on. But, you know, so, the, so one of the things that is, is begging to be um, investigated is exactly this question. Do these regularities um, in this coarse-grained way, such as, let's assume the Dunbar numbers are correct, um, wh- what has been optimized in leading mm-hmm. to those numbers? Why five for the sort of the, the mm-hmm. smallest group? And why does it go up in factors of three? Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and just to hark back to the beginning of our conversation in terms of the biology, that was the question I asked myself, why the numbers for those all those scaling laws in biology mm-hmm. had one quarter, number four, mm-hmm. and that we were able to um, understand in terms of the dynamics of the kinds of uh, networks that sustain biological life. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh so going coming back to the to the socioeconomic systems we have and something like those Dunbar numbers, um somehow ultimately it is the integration and tension between, on one hand, the physicality of the system, that is, it's um you know the constraints of having to be in a place and having to travel from A to B uh-huh. and uh, the thermodynamics of that, the energy uses and so on. So that's sort of kind of its physical aspect. Uh-huh. So the tension and integration of that with the information exchange uh-huh. that takes place in social networks um, uh, and, and what that leads to in terms of optimizing that exchange of information uh-huh. in order to get more and that more could be
0: to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, Whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin.
1: Um, So that's the kind of thinking um, that um, I would like uh, ultimately to be able to put into a more formal, more It's hard to be rigorous, I'll use the word rigorous, but a more mathematical framework in order to understand these questions.
0: That's fascinating. I'd never conceived of it like that. So it's the perhaps the tension between physical possibility and informational throughput, something like that. Yeah, Sure. Yes. That's so interesting because that that might be an interesting thread to pull on for. The consequences of the digital age, right? The fact that sure. we've we've removed a lot of the physical constraints from social interaction. Um, there's trade-offs, of course. Like what you know, yes. what us having a Zoom call is not the same as us sitting in a room, you know. Sure. Um, but that's really fascinating. I never thought about no, that. So
1: that's one of, one of the questions you're touching on there that uh, I don't yes. know the answer to. Is exactly that? Is there you know has the digital age, the IT revolution uh, changed all this, because has it, it certainly has relieved us of place, we don't, here we are, you know, having a conversation, uh, but, uh, you know, we're riding know whatever it is, 5000 miles or whatever it is mm-hmm. apart, but we can have this conversation. And um, so it's relieved us in a certain sense of place. But as you say, it ain't quite the same as us mm-hmm. being in the same room together, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. I mean, there's uh, it, it's it's kind of it 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 has more than a single dimension missing. It's not just that we're not three dimensional, mm-hmm. but it's much more than that. It's got a whole kind of social dimension that's missing from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, it has uh, it it, it's, it's, it has um, uh, decreased physicality. On the other hand, it's increased information exchange, obviously, I mean, the uh, digital age, we have much more information flying and so on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what is that doing to this? Is that is that a fundamental change? Is it going to change anything really? Um, And and I don't know if I talked about this, but I did talk about it in the book. I did think about this when writing the book. And um, Uh, At first, I thought, gee whiz, that is going to be a profound, that is a truly profound change. And Uh everything that's happened up to now is going to be dramatically transformed. Uh, And then I wondered, I started thinking about it. I thought, you know, um, a much bigger change is what I discovered took place in the 19th century uh, with uh, two things that happened. The invention of the telephone, mm-hmm. which meant that I mean, up to the telephone, uh, you know, you um,
0: <laughs> letters
1: right? you couldn't. I mean, you couldn't enjoy. I mean, you had to be in the presence of someone to actually interact. Mm-hmm. You could send a letter. Well, if you lived in the same city, that you know, in, in good postal systems, that that could actually be sent in the morning and delivered in the afternoon. But mostly, it was the next day. Mm-hmm. And if you lived in another city, it might be. Two days or three days. And uh-huh. you lived in another country, it might be a month. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, you know, we we changed that in one, and that was Maxwell with his electromagnetic uh-huh. waves figure to transmit. Um, so um, we had this that you could have instantaneous interaction, um, even though you were not in the presence of the same person. And very quickly we were able to do that, you know, across the Atlantic. So uh-huh. that was extraordinary. I mean, that was nothing close to that that ever happened. And that changed everything. But the other thing that happened before that was, of course, the electric, uh, the um, steam engine, uh-huh. the uh, the contraction of space. Uh-huh. That, uh, you know, the vast majority of people never moved more than 10 or 20 miles where they were born in their entire life. right? And uh, suddenly you know, uh, well, not suddenly, but gradually, mm-hmm. most people could, if they wanted, um, interact, you know, go and meet with someone 100 miles away. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, 3,000 miles away, you know, it would take them time, but they could do that. And, uh, you know, that had never happened. It was always walking or at best horseback. And so that changed over. So these were Extraordinarily, extraordinary Mm. revolutions—the contraction of space and the contraction of time—and those, I think, were greater revolutions than the internet, actually. Uh Even though the internet has, you know, made it much more global, of course. It almost almost as if. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead.
0: Because. I was just going to say that it's almost as if those were the zero to one innovations and the internet is like a just a degree, right? We're yes. This is still the telephone effectively, but it's just higher resolution that's, and all that's, of that.
1: That's the way I began to think about it. Yeah. Instead of seeing it as a zero to one, one to two, to take mm-hmm. that, <laughs> it really was zero to one and then you've embellished in a marvelous way mm-hmm. on the one so to yeah. speak, you know, in, a, in a marvelous way. I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. But the real revolution was the zero to one, the contraction of space and time.
0: Yeah. Excellent points. I, I'm going to, if you don't mind, take this opportunity actually, because I think this tension between physical possibility and informational throughput, um, I'm going to just think out loud here, but I think this is key to I think this has an effect on money as well, and I'll I'll try to explain. I know you mentioned your fear of money, but I'll try to make it very (laughs) (laughs) very clear. Um, So, basically, gold was selected as money because it was really good at holding value across time. Right, It's something that we couldn't increase the supply of no matter how hard we tried. It had some other characteristics, but... We, we could say that that should suffice for now gold was the best store of value money um historically the problem with gold though was its physicality actually like that's what gave it that's what that's what made it impossible to counterfeit was that it was physical but when the world starts to connect itself in uh via telecommunication channels like the telephone telegraph internet etc the physicality of gold ends up being something that holds it back actually because you can't you know you can't send gold around the world it's hard to hard to support a globalizing economy on a physical money let's say mm-hmm. so that was the impetus to create gold backed currency instead so we could have a form of money that you and i are just sending ledger entries to one another effectively right you know debit your account credit my account yeah. so we have a lot of informational throughput um, by decoupling ourselves from the physicality of gold. But that, of course, introduced the problem that now you're trusting humans with a supply of money instead of trusting nature, as we were with gold. So this there's a tension here, again, where the physical possibility and the informational throughput um, you know, caused gold to become money, then we needed to scale gold and currency. But now that's completely gone off the rails. We've decoupled money from gold entirely. And now money supplies worldwide are being expanded at a, at a rate unprecedented. Um, and just to try, we talk about in Bitcoin, giving people the orange pill, this might be the great place to try and give the orange pills. Like, okay, Bitcoin is just a tool that holds a fixed supply. So it holds its value across time, but it's pure digital information. So you can beam it across space. So it's kind of the middle way between these between gold and gold-backed currency. Um, And maybe a simple way to say that is like, money's a tool for moving value across space and time. Gold was good at time, but not space. Currency's good at space, but not time. Bitcoin's good at both. Um, But I'd never thought, I never was able to form that until you just now highlighted this tension between (laughs) physical possibility and information.
1: Yes, no. That's a, a very interesting way of looking at it. I must say, um, and indeed, one of the one of the things I've been I've had trouble with thinking about money um, conceptually is that even before Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, whatever, was um, its abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um, You know that um, it was no longer tied, wasn't tied to gold, but it was and only loosely tied to um, work and energy. You know, I mean, material things. You know that, uh, and uh, and trying to figure out what that meant um, a a little bit. And then this this new thing came along that um, that made it even more abstract. And, and now, it's true, that uh, money in this form is um, me back off a second, you know, when you get your if if you're salaried, and you get paid, um, there's sort of an implication there, that what you get, you got paid for the work that you did, you know, it's very, uh-huh. There's sort of one to one, there's a feeling there's some kind of one to one correspondence. Uh-huh. I mean, originally it was, you know, if you dug ditches, it really was the work that you did. Uh-huh. And then it became a little more abstract that if you're a manager, well, you're doing a different kind of work. But still, there was this image, uh, this idea that, uh-huh. you know, it's in many of our minds, actually, that it's tied to, you know, work, production, and uh-huh. so forth. Um, but then, of course, it, it, it's gone way big, it gets much beyond that, where now money, even before, as I say, Bitcoin, it starts to become quite abstract in terms of once you have ideas of investment. For example, um, Warren Buffett's one of the richest men in the world, but in terms of the old, quite the old ideas about work, you know, he, he's never done a day's work in his life. I mean, in that sense, it's mm-hmm. so the Marx, you know, the Marxist view of money mm-hmm. as labour, kind mm-hmm. of thing, which is very nineteenth century, um, and uh, not recognising the role of investment as work and as part of the, I don't know, the lubrication mm-hmm. of, 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 of a capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now we've gone one step beyond that. It seems to me that it's now not tied to any of those things. It's sort of of itself, and indeed it is information because it's stored in this in some in some digital form. I mean yeah. that's what it is. It's not, you know, and uh, and yet it obviously is still related because, presumably, if you have cryptocurrency, you can. There's an exchange rate, I mean, mm-hmm. whatever it is, that it seems to fluctuate enormously. That relates it back to what many of us think of as a dollar bill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm still struggling. Frankly, I'm still struggling with that, is to try to see what it is and what its implications are.
0: And, I, don't intu- really,
1: I, don't, I, don't, and I confess, I do not understand it.
0: <laughs> oh. Well, your, your intuition's spot on that gold... Was, you know, we often say this dollar, you know, people say, oh, a currency backed by gold. The question really is, what's backing the gold? And that was energy, frankly. You know, it was, it was, um, you know, no matter how you expended your energy in the world, if you couldn't find something more profitable, frankly, you were either employed in something more profitable than gold mining or you were mining gold. Gold was like kind of the backstop to energy expenditure, something like that. But that energy expenditure is exactly what secured its supply. That's what made it a good store of value. But when you then decouple that and you just give the authority to issue money to a government with no energy expenditure, you get, well, clearly it's a very perverse incentive because now there's one group of people that can just confiscate the energy of others by printing money effectively. And that's what's happening right now. You know, it's it's rampant. Um but Bitcoin gets us back to that principle of gold, actually, because you have to expend energy in Bitcoin mining to create Bitcoin. So it's not, I mean, it's a modern, clearly it's a major innovation, but it's really just adopting or or reusing or recycling these old principles of gold just in a new digital form. So... Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, it's quite fascinating and... Uh... Uh, of course, it's one of the light like gold. It, it, it. Um, I mean, the thing, the other thing about gold, of course, was that it uh, transcended uh, national boundaries. Yes, I mean, and, and that was one of its uh, great attributes and important one for mm. international commerce and so, uh, etc. So it had a kind of universality associated mm. with it as weird as it was to have you know this piece of metal <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of uh, the, the representation of that is kind of, was always i think struck everybody as strange but yeah nevertheless was agreed upon yeah. um, uh, and and the thing about the this current this new internet currency is that it is also global mm-hmm. and um, transcends all boundaries Mm -hmm. Um, and is independent actually of of national currencies, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, the question is, is it going to supersede them and become something that, you know, some countries, you you know much better than I, I mean, I hardly know this stuff, but, you know, some countries are beginning to sort of think about adopting it in some Mm -hmm. form of their currency, and goodness knows what that will do.
0: Yeah, it's a a rabbit hole, as we say, and um, yeah, yeah,
1: I keep thinking, by the way, no, you know, I know nothing about I'm I'm hopeless at finance and my sort of uh, dealing with money. But I have thought in terms of trying to understand it, maybe I said it early also, maybe I should buy some. You know, <laughs> just, yeah, to, uh, just see what happens, just see, you know, I'll probably lose my password or whatever it is you have. To have you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's uh, fortunately there's a lot of businesses that have emerged that help you custody and do all the things. Um, But yeah, you can also self custody. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's how a lot of people get involved in it. Is you end up just buying some out of either you're speculating on the price or you're just buying it out of curiosity. But you know that that entices you to think more about it. So. Okay, yeah, that's
1: meet- what I thought just to get just to learn about how it works and so on.
0: Yes, exactly. Let me try to get read one more excerpt if you've got time for it.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. yeah. We yes.
0: You wrote that this is page 316 in your book. All socioeconomic activity in cities involves the interaction between people. Employment, wealth creation, innovation, and ideas, the spread of infectious diseases, health care, crime, policing, education, entertainment, and indeed, all of the pursuits that characterize modern Homo sapiens and are emblematic of urban life are sustained and generated by the continual exchange of information, goods, and money between people. Um, I just... What I was thinking about here, first of all, the primacy of exchange, I think exchange is such uh you know, it's so fundamental almost like everything and to be very macrocosmic about it, it's like the only thing that never changes is change and change itself is driven by exchange. You know, there's energy, everything's interacting with everything else constantly. Um, I guess the question I'd like to ask you is about emergent properties. That emergent properties seem they seem to be derived from relationship, right? So instead of an emergent property just being, I guess, the rough description "one plus one equals three type of thing, um, I'll, I'll let you correct that description if if that's inadequate. What is it about exchange that allows elements in a system to become more than the sum of their parts? What is it? there seems to be something almost, I don't want to use the word mystical, but something so deeply fundamental about this concept. Um, and then in as a follow-on question to that. It's like, okay, we know that also exchange, the more free exchange we have, the more wealth creation we have in the marketplace. So it's interesting to me that there's this fundamental reality of exchange. And then somehow by acknowledging and honoring that reality, we create the very practical result of more wealth. So what is it about, I guess you could maybe say wealth is an emergent property of exchange, Mm -hmm. um, but I'll leave it at that and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Well,
1: let's see. So, yes, so it is the very essence of what a network is about. I mean, that's why networks underlie all this because they are the formal representation of exchange mechanisms between individual constituents. And, um, uh, you know, and a social network is one manifestation of that. Um, But, um, you know, um, uh, you can, just in the physical world, if you take, uh, let's take something like, um, you know, a nucleus of an atom. So that contains protons and neutrons, and they, you know, one way of thinking about it is, well, they stay together because there's a force between them. But in fact, uh, if you dig deeper, that force is arising because of the exchange between them of something we call mesons, mm-hmm. okay? uh, another particle. They exchange them, you know, uh, between them. And the image that, uh, you know, the sort of cartoon version of that. Is that, um, you know, consider uh, two people, two children, for example, and uh, uh, there's a constraint on them. They have a ball, a tennis ball, say, and the constraint is that um, they have to throw the ball to the other person, the other child or the other person. And as soon as that one catches it, that person has to throw it back to the other one, and they have to keep doing this. Well, they're forever bound together. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a force between them, which is actually, you know, you don't think of that as a force, but it's a force. That that rule, and that's what protons and neutrons do inside a nucleus. They're continually exchanging these mesons, which keep, which, and that's the rule. That's mm-hmm. the rule. Of the the fundamental forces of nature that they have to exchange mesons and that manifests itself that they are attracted to each other Mm. by this having always to exchange. So that's the most primitive version of exchange. Um, But, you know, if you then have many of them, as you do in in the nucleus, not just between two but between many, that forms a kind of network of this Mm. sort of bouncing, there's these balls, these balls are bouncing Mm -hmm. between them. So in a social network, that ball is information. We are exchanging information continuously between each other. And in some curious way, that keeps us bound to each other in one form or another. We're, you know, we are, you know, in this metaphor, we're sort of like these little um, machines, that have to send out information to some other person in the system. And he has to send, he or she has to send out information to another one. And that keeps us all bound together. Mm. And in some sense, that's what a city or a social organization is. And um, uh, the only thing that is not invoked in that, and what distinguishes us from the protons and neutrons in the nucleus is that um, as you exchange um, in in a social network, um, uh, that exchange of information um, increases as you get more and more people. And that's that positive Mm. feedback. Mm. And that produces more. And and, and by producing more, you have, uh, if you start with a small community, um, you have this kind of emergent phenomenon of a city. So, you know, so it's, it's it's that the positive feedback involved in that exchange is the driving force that leads to whatever the emergent phenomena are. And those emergent phenomena could be the city itself, mm-hmm. or it could be a business that evolves within the city, um, or it could be, you know, um, a uh, a social riot that takes place, Mm. or whatever. Hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm trying to give a kind of (laughs) a simplistic version of Mm. the dynamic that is uh, part of what happens in any um, uh, um, adaptive system and adaptive is, is important here because there really are external forces that are at work here, that are um, both between people, but between groups of people, Mm -hmm. That there's competition. And, uh, you know, the the evolution of the system, as it deals with the changing external environment, which we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier, that that leads to um, the need to adapt and uh, these positive feedback mechanisms leads to innovations to deal with the um, uh, changing external environment.
0: That's fascinating, so, and, and the positive feedback, so that in this exchange then, in particular in a social network, and the rough analogy I'm thinking in my mind here for positive feedback is like, if you get the microphone too close to the amplifier, right? It, it yeah. has that positive feedback up to a screech. Yeah. Right. Um, there's some amplification occurring at each exchange, and yeah. then the faster that exchange, or the higher the intensity of exchange, the more that amplification. Is that roughly it? Yes,
1: indeed, indeed, indeed. No, so you know when 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 a group of people get together and there's interaction, um, you know it, it 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 doesn't stay. It, it cannot stay static. You know, it it builds on itself. Now, you know, most of what it builds on is, you know, what the result is totally uninteresting to Uh you know anyone else, and it may be uninteresting to the people. But it Uh does build on something, Uh you know, and something changes, and um, something evolves from it, Uh Um, and, uh, and and the system is continually doing that. So, and and I often say, you know, that dynamic, that building, that continuous sort of buzz and conversation that is taking place, as I say, mostly doesn't lead to anything of interest to anyone else or even the entire system. But every once in a while, it leads to, um, you know, the theory of relativity or Uh the invention of Google, or, you know, I mean, that's, that's the phenomenon that takes place. And society facilitates that by creating either formal institutions to uh, facilitate that, like, um, you know, office spaces and lecture halls, uh-huh. and universities and, uh, and, and theatres and sports stadiums to bring you know, to, uh-huh. to, to, to sort of stoke the, the fire stoke the cauldron, uh-huh. does, um, you know, the crucible uh, mm-hmm. acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that's what a that's what social organization does. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we um, and that's why we have these organizations. That's why we have companies and cities and so on. And, uh, but it also does it in informal ways by having, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, coffee bars and Starbucks and uh, restaurants mm-hmm. and uh, uh, plazas in cities and parks. Uh It's all there from this perspective in order to um, increase social interaction and increase the the continuous feedback mechanisms Uh with the idea that, you know, it it might affect an individual's life. Uh But I suppose in the the overall scheme of things, to make some major transition to Uh something that you create something that's going to affect everybody's life like you know an amazon or google or quantum mechanics or Uh whatever
0: uh, it's very fascinating and so one last question about this i'll let you go it positive feedback we call it positive feedback but it can have that's just the Positive in the sense that it's amplifying oh. the signal. Yes, I'm sorry. It can have, yes, yes, it could be it can quite have positive or yes. negative results. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yes,
1: yeah. I'm sorry. That's a very good point, and I wasn't thinking of that. Yes, I was using it in a kind of technical way, that it amplifies, mm-hmm. uh, but it of course can have uh, highly deleterious effects. Uh, clearly, I mean, depending I on what I mean. we're amplifying, right? <laughs> and what we're amplifying. Yes, absolutely. Oh no, absolutely. Um, is,
0: so uh, the, I'm sorry, I, the,
1: I, know, I never thought about that. I apologize, but I was using it in its kind of engineering, technical sense.
0: No, I think you not, may not. have actually said in the book to that effect that you mean positive just good. in the sense of amplification. Yeah, good, uh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, the question I would ask here is then in the domain of social networks or human hierarchies, is this speaking to the importance of what ideas we're amplifying. Like I'm thinking of, you know, Marxism. Right? We had this beautiful idea of, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. No. But we amplified that signal, and it turns out that was disastrously wrong. Right? It just yeah. didn't work. Um, is that what this, is that what this is? Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's that's an example of it. Yeah. I, I think uh, on, you know uh National Socialism, and so mm-hmm. on, or whatever. I mean, uh, the, you know, political movements are very good examples of that, of course. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it certainly can have uh, disastrous effects, and uh, so there's no, you know, it has. There's no judgment on this. Right. There's no judgment call uh, that it's positive feedback does not mean positive in the good or bad. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, moral or ethical issues. The, uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of interesting. You you know, I mean, uh, religions probably started this way, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And, uh, one of the questions you could ask that I have often wondered about is, is, I hate to say this is a terrible thing to end on, really. It's quite controversial. Uh, you know, was that positive or negative in terms of judgment? You know, right. I mean... You know, we've had these major religions, but actually, in terms of you know, good and bad, were they actually uh, was it but was it a good thing?? Right. You know, it ended up, I mean, after all, Christianity led to um, great works of art and cathedrals and all yeah. wondrous things, people doing good, good acts and so on. Yeah. But it also led <laughs> to terrible wars and the killing right. and persecution. Of all kinds of people, and so for no good reason. Right. And so, you know, I've often fantasized about, you know, is it possible to, uh, you know, make a ledger where you take a religion, say, just as an example, or a political movement, uh-huh. and you put on one side the good uh-huh. and you give it some value? You know, Christianity, well, it built these, as I say, built these great cathedrals. It had all the, the, the great um, music and the great art. Um, and, and on the other hand, you know, it created um, terrible wars and terrible persecution. And you put, you give something negative, <laughs> and you add it up with the ledger. So if, if God, in his infinite wisdom, presumably has done that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I just... Um... Yeah, I guess the point is we just have to be very selective about what yes. ideas we amplify in our social no, exactly. networks.
1: Exactly. And I think that's the point. That's, I mean, I was making as being a big cavalier in my trying to joke about it. But um, uh, no, in all seriousness, no, we have to be very careful about the ideas we amplify and what happens to them. Um, human beings have done terrible things and we're going to do them again, I and we've done some wonderful things and, you know, the onus is on us collectively to amplify the good and uh, minimize the, the, the bad or the negative. Easier said than done, obviously. <laughs>
0: and there is the plight of human history in a nutshell. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Jeffrey, I very much enjoyed this conversation. Um, is there anything else you wanted to leave a uh, note? You want no, to? Oh, just to say thank you very much for inviting me,
1: on, you know, on your show, so to speak, and uh, I've enjoyed our interaction greatly. It's been very interesting. Uh, you asked very good questions, and I, I, I'm deeply appreciative that you you really did your homework <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you thought through, and you have your own, you know, and I, it was it was very stimulating. So.
0: Wonderful. Well, I really much enjoyed it too. Um, And keep doing what you're doing. Uh, You know, I think this work, very cutting edge, very pioneering, very important. Um, So thank you for all that you've done. Yeah.